welcome to episode 102 of Running Matters Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Hadfield, and today we have a uh, not-to-be-missed special regarding sports hydration and nutrition. I have the pleasure of interviewing Daryl Griffiths of Poda Nutrition. And Daryl has a uh, 25-year history studying the ins and outs of sports nutrition and hydration. He's just recently released an audiobook uh, titled Sweat, Think, Go Faster, uh, which is a really all-encompassing uh, book regarding all, all things hydration and nutrition. Um, some amazing pearls of wisdom in there, and he really breaks down some very complex nutritional science into some very easily digestible chunks for us to uh, consume. So uh, speaks to the layman athlete incredibly well, uh, and it's all really easily understandable stuff. Uh, I, I almost guarantee if you follow the directions in this, in this book and you, and you stick with the process, uh, it, it will certainly solve a lot of your previous gastrointestinal problems, you know, bonking, stomach issues and whatnot. Uh, definitely an episode not, not to be missed. Uh, before we get started, I'd just like to thank our podcast partners, Basecamp, Altitude, Gaimi Allied Health Centre, Fractel, Goo Energy, Running Matters Coaching, Raid Light, Ranala, Cronulla Beer Co., and new partners, Coda Nutrition. Uh, and Coda have been good enough to give us a discount code for our listeners. Um, you receive 15% off all of uh, the amazing products that Coda have to sell. Uh, so jump on to codanutrition.com to, to see what they've got uh, and, and use the discount code RUNMAT15. So R-U-N-M-A-T-15. And you can also find all of their... Uh, you down at Ranulla if you're in the, the local Sutherland Shire area, and I'm sure many other stores around Australia and the world, actually. Uh, so, so jump on and ha have a look at their, their stuff. Don't forget to jump on the rest of our podcast partners and, and use those discount codes as well. They're all still available. Anyway, without further ado, we'll get Daryl on and uh, chat some nutrition and hydration. Enjoy, guys. Okay. Welcome to the program. Daryl Griffiths of Coda Nutrition. How are you, mate? Very well. Thanks for having me. Oh, no, no problem at all. I'm really excited to find out uh, some, some information. Just pick that brain of yours. Now, I, uh, I first came across your book, uh, Sweat, Think, Go Faster, in Hanny Alston's shop down in Hobart, sort of eight years or so ago, and, and loved it so much that I finished it before hitting the tarmac at Sydney Airport. So congratulations on, on the book and now the recent release in audiobook form. What was it like narrating your own words, mate? It was actually a challenge. Um, I, I'm glad there was no one listening to me because it was quite frustrating at times. But um, if you have read the book and listened to the audio book, there's, a, there's quite a bit of difference there in that um, as I was reading, I was thinking about things that um, or, or the things I was thinking about at the time and why I went down that particular path and um, and I sort of go into more of the applied research um, in the audio book um, and try to make it and try it, I, I try to make it more um, conversational as well. Um, but yeah, it, you would think it, it would be as simple as just reading off the page, but it's, it's, a, it's quite a challenge and one that I have a lot of respect for for people who can actually do it properly. 
I'll make you did, did an amazing job at kept me company on the way down to Threadbow and uh, you certainly got just as much information out of the audio book as I did reading the text. So, yeah, fantastic. Um, tell me about your early background in sport and what sparked your initial curiosity regarding hydration and nutrition, Darrell. Yeah, uh, probably when I was younger, it was surfing. That's, and that's all I did. Uh, played a lot of football as well. Um, but when with junior football, uh, because I tended to play okay and was always having to play up the next level, the next age group. And by the time I got to 18 years of age, I'd, I don't know how many games I played, but I'd had enough by then. And uh, I went to, uh, to live at Rottnest Island for, um, for a little while. And that's when I first saw uh, triathlon. And uh, there was a race there every year in May. And I started training for triathlon on Rottnest Island. And uh, that was then... Um, something I did and got quite passionate about for quite a while. And then over that period of time, um, then I made it into the fire brigade, which was something I'd always wanted to do ever since I was a little kid. And with that two days, two nights and your four days off, you get a real good opportunity to train quite well um, and put a lot of training in it. And you got some money coming in at the same time. So um, it was actually as a firefighter that my interest in all this was sparked. And um, as I explained in the audio book, it was recognizing that some firefighters around me were handling the hot conditions better than others. And in those sort of conditions, you see things happen very quickly. Um, so that was really the catalyst. It was um, just that, that uh, the interest in, wanting to find out that these firefighters, I knew I was way fitter then, but they could handle the hotter conditions better than I could. Mm. Um, and that's where, it, that's where it started. Yeah. And so, so I guess the, the most important early observation was that each person was vastly different in terms of their physiology. And, and I love the analogy you use comparing that difference in physiology to different sized road bikes or different tennis rackets or different size sort of running shoes. Can you briefly explain the comparison for the listeners there? Yeah, well, you're sporting equipment. So you look at the manufacturers of sporting equipment and they cover a broad spectrum of, of different sizes and shapes. And then they have um, products that then they can, the athlete can then adapt to different surfaces or different conditions. Um, so, yeah, I wanted to make it pretty clear from the start in the audio book that we have all these choices when it comes to our equipment that we use for our sport and the refinements we make as we get better and more um, and we spend more time with that sport that we find just even small improvements in our equipment makes a big difference to our performance not just how fast we go but how comfortable we feel how much better we recover all those sorts of things and the sporting equipment companies have that you know, they've, they've only received that information from the athletes that, that they're working with. And so the analogy was to use powdered drinks and, and ready-made drinks in that they're just a one-size-fits-all. So the message these sports drinks companies are sending is that everyone is exactly the same. Um, we all drink the same volume of fluid. We all have the same amount of calories. 
and we all have the same amount of electrolyte. So, and we all drink the same volume, whether it's five degrees or 35 degrees. And to me, um, the simple fact that these powdered sports drinks dominate the market is mind boggling. I, I, it's, it's and, and very frustrating at the same time, but um, the difference is that I've got to spend three hours in an audio book explaining to you <laughs> why you need to separate your hydration and calories. And they just put a really nice ad in a magazine with some famous athlete saying, this is all I drink and it's all I need. Yes. So you can see who has the biggest challenge in regards to getting their message across. <laughs> well, truly, if, if you get anything out of you know this podcast or all the audio book or anything, it's to realise that one size truly doesn't fit all and, and you need to look into it slightly further. And hopefully we can give the listeners some, uh, I guess, impetus to go out and, and try out their their own sort of routines and, and avoid the one size fits all formula. Anyway, we'll, we'll do our best to, to convince them, Daryl. Um, <laughs> Thanks, mate. Yeah, you certainly threw yourself into researching early on and, and the athletes' different requirements in terms of sweat rates and calorie consumption. How difficult, practically speaking, was this to do in the early days? Not just a matter of buying a kit and trying it out. What were you doing with the athletes? Yeah, well, that, um, yeah, that, so. Yeah, with the audio book that's just under three hours, that uh, that was probably a good part of 15 years of research mm-hmm. and then another 10 just continually testing that and realising that um, that everyone is, is so different. But, um, yeah, the, the research was fortunate and a lot of it was on myself to start with and learning my own unique physiological makeup and I really wanted to know why I was struggling in the heat when these other guys weren't. Um, because we were told all along that the fitter you are, the stronger you are, you know, the better heat acclimated you are, the better you're going to handle the heat. Well, I tried everything. And uh, it turned out that the reason I wasn't handling the heat as well as these other firefighters was I had a much higher sodium concentration in my sweat. Mm. And it wasn't until I started to address that that I started to be able to tolerate the heat much better because I was addressing my needs better than I was before. Um, so that's where I took that knowledge into athletes and then started testing their sweat rate in different conditions, learning very quickly that, um, regardless of the size of the athlete, um, whether they were small frame or large frame, it had, it wasn't an indicator of how much they sweat because a lot of people are under the impression that, you know, if you're six foot three and 90 kilo, that you're going to sweat a lot more than someone who's five foot four and 50 kilo. Mm. That's actually not the fact. There's a lot of athletes who are far foot four and 50 kilo who sweat a lot more than someone who's a lot bigger than them. Yeah. So um, it was just doing all this research and collecting this data, but a lot of the data I didn't really, was, I didn't know what I was looking for. So it wasn't like, okay, I had an agenda and this is, this is the path I want to take. It was just learning along the way that, geez, look at the difference in sweat rates with these two athletes. No, same intensity, same environmental conditions, but one sweating almost twice the volume of the other. Mm. And then um, uh, I was very, very fortunate that a friend of mine was working for a company who was uh, using uh, devices to test sodium, but it was in the food industry. Okay. And I was giving him sweat samples. I, I, I don't know how much this guy saved me, but it was tens of thousands of dollars in, uh, mm. in studies. 
Um, and I was giving him these sweat samples and he was doing some testing for me on the side. And uh, then it struck me how different the sodium concentration in sweat was. Mm. Um, so I'm yeah. learning all this stuff along the way. And then, um, it, it, you know, one day I just, you know, I saw enough data that I thought, well, these one size fits all products, um, which the fire brigade were providing us. It's like giving us all the same size boot. Mm -hmm. um, it's going to fit some guys, but and, and girls, but it's it's not going to suit everyone. So, mm -hmm. yeah, that that was the that was the the applied research earlier on, and then I just got a lot more advanced in regards to having my own titration device and all that sort of stuff. So I could get a lot more testing done. And then that's when I really started seeing a big difference between um, each person's physiological makeup when it came to sweat. And, and look, how, how different were your early observations from the accepted body of research and knowledge at the time? Yeah, well, that was the frustrating thing because I'm reading these um, published articles and they're saying to me, Oh, if you train in the heat, your sodium concentration is going to drop and all this sort of thing. But I'm looking at these papers going, well, where are the numbers? What's the sodium concentration when they're not heat acclimated? And what is it when they are heat acclimated? Mm. Does it drop by half? Does it drop 100 milligrams? There was no actual data. The conclusion was that your sodium concentration drops. But I was doing all this testing um, once I had my own titration device and testing athletes in all different types of um, conditions, um, different levels of fitness, uh, different times of the year. Um, we were increasing the amount of salt they consume. We were testing them when they'd done four or six week heat acclimation. And this sodium concentration number kept coming back the same. Mm. Um, what did change was the volume of sweat they lost. And that was based on the intensity of the exercise that we were doing and the environmental conditions. So, yeah, I, I, yeah, the published articles just weren't making any sense. And that was adding to my frustration because obviously these guys are the experts and they've got all these letters after their names, but why am I seeing different numbers to them? And uh, you start to learn how to read through the, uh, between the lines of these um, published articles. And the first thing I do now is just go down to see who was funded by and uh, you get a pretty clear picture straight away of uh, of why the, they get to that conclusion because yeah. that's what they want you to want you to hear. If, if you see the Gatorade Institute written down the bottom in fine print, then you might want to look elsewhere. <laughs> that's that's the sad thing about these published articles, man. Is that you know anything to do with sports nutrition and the and the human body, you, you simply cannot come to a conclusion. Mm -hmm. um, and if you do. There needs to be a whole bunch of caveats under that conclusion saying this is the temperature this is the humidity this is the intensity this is the athletes that we use to to uh do the test on um, and if we change any of these numbers we'll get a different conclusion hmm. so um unfortunately those caveats aren't in place so no and, and i guess most yeah. people don't scratch the surface enough to even realize the difference so this is why it's good to listen to experts like yourself um Look, obviously, you're unsatisfied with the way athletes' nutrition and hydration, their needs have been met by the available products. So at what stage did you decide, decide to develop your own hydration formula, Daryl? Yeah, that, um, well, we, when we started importing the energy gels from New Zealand, we had a, 
a product called CarboLite, which was a an all-in-one product with you know the calories and fluid and electrolytes all mixed in one. And I'm looking at all this data that I was collecting from different athletes, and I'm going, well, okay, we might be able to get the calories right for this athlete, but hydration and the sorry the amount of fluid and the and the sodium it's, we can't even get close to replacing what they require or there's too much fluid for this athlete because they are a very low sweater but they have a quite a high sodium concentration in their sweat so it was um <laughs> it was a lot of you know, i don't have any hair left that's probably why because i was tearing it out trying to work out <laughs> how to deal with all this because um i'm reading all the same uh, published articles as everyone else i'm going no no we can't we can't just have a one size fits all we 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 need to separate hydration to our calories because we compete at different temperatures even that alone should tell us that we need to drink different amounts um in the morning when it's cold and a lot more in the afternoon when it's hotter so um it was then trying to work out um, well, firstly, removing the calories, that was the easy part. So we wanted a hydration product with, with no calories in it. And then, you know, the best way to administer that. And uh, the, the effervescent tablet was by far in regards to the portability, the ease of use, the fact that if you did have a higher sodium concentration in your sweat, like I did, um, if one athlete might only use one tablet, but I, I will use up to two and a half to three tablets in a bottle. Mm-hmm. Um, some one and a half, some half a tab. It just you, you could then manipulate um, that hydration to suit your own needs. Um, and it was then just working out the other electrolytes as well, which are yeah, they're, they're important electrolytes. But um, as I explained in the audio book, that there's some that are way more important than others when we are experiencing sweat loss. Yeah, for sure. And we'll get in a little bit of, um, I guess, specifics in terms of sodium versus the other guys in a sec. Um, look, the audio book, Sweat, Think, Go Faster, it's broken down into some you know, amazing little chapters so you can take away one little sort of gem of knowledge at a time and it's really easy to sort of work your way through the audio book. Um, and, and the thing I love about it the most is you break down some really complex nutritional science into some pretty easily digestible formats. Um, so I, I thought for the purpose of the podcast, we'll sort of try to break some things down into sodium, uh, hydration, and then calorie content. So we, we, we might uh, kick off with sodium, I suppose. Uh, and so, look, we, we hear a lot about electrolyte replacement in running and more specifically sodium replacement. What are the more important factors of sodium in our system and, and what's the danger of neglecting to replace enough during competition? Yeah, so the, the reason that sodium is more important, and it is by far, <clears throat> is that we do lose a lot more than, than, other elect- than, than other electrolytes. And the reason that is, is that sodium is, is mainly extracellular. It's mainly in our bloodstream. And when we lose sweat, that gets caught up in the process and, and the reason why we lose more sodium than others. Um, and some athletes, for whatever reason, I don't know the reason, they lose more sodium. Some lose more sodium than others. And why that is, uh, I don't know, we've got eight different blood types. So we've got different blood chemistry. 
so I guess that's probably the the common sense answer is that um, some don't need some athletes don't need to need to lose as much to maintain a safe core temperature. Um, it, <laughs> you can go nuts trying to think about um, a lot of this stuff and why we are so different. Yeah. Um, but that's that's the main reason: the fact that sodium is extracellular, potassium, magnesium intracellular, so the inside the cell. Um, and this was the frustrating thing for me too: is that potassium and magnesium at the time of doing all this research, and even now, we're getting way more publicity and marketing um, than sodium was. So that was another frustrating thing. And I guess why it took me so long is that you know I'm thinking you know why what's going on? What why is why are these two particular electrolytes which we don't lose near as much as sodium getting all the attention? Um, so, you know, just to add to the frustration um, and then realizing from all the testing that I was doing that there was a massive range in sodium concentrations in sweat between individuals. Um, what sort of that, range uh, do, you, do you find there, Darren? What, um... Yeah, so we've got some outliers in that um, we've got some very low numbers and we've got some very high ones. So the lowest... Uh, 293 milligrams and what that means is for every one liter of sweat that athlete lost there's 293 milligrams of sodium in that one liter of sweat and the highest i've seen is 3084 milligrams wow so you know a massive disparity um, but when i say they're the outliers there's there are a few in that number but not but not a huge amount the majority is sort of around the 800 milligrams to 1800 milligrams, mm -hmm. which is still a big range. Um, but it highlights that majority of the people that I've tested, and it's, it's over a couple of thousand now, um, it, it, any powdered or ready-made sports drink doesn't go anywhere close to replacing the amount of sodium you lose. Mm -hmm. So that was the... Um, that was the main reason for trying to formulate a product that you could add more tablets to increase the sodium, but still be palatable, not uh, impact on any other um, electrolytes and what those, um, what disadvantages that could be. So yeah, it was, a, it was a bit of a, it was a bit of a juggling act and took a couple of years to formulate, but um, yeah, we've had some awesome results since. Mm. And, and and so during your 2000 sort of uh, athlete samples there, you found across the board that once you've got this specific sodium concentration in your sweat, then it's fixed for life essentially. So you know your number. Yeah, pretty much. Um, mm. It might swing 100 milligrams here and there, but that 100 milligrams is not going to change the um, plan that you would... Practically speaking. Um, yeah, that's true. Exactly. It's... Uh, it's a very small swing. Um, in fact, the um, I've tested mine over you know fifteen to twenty years, mm. and it swung about hundred milligrams here and there. Um, and I'm up around the seventeen hundred to eighteen hundred milligrams per liter yep. of sweat. Yep. yep. So that's that was the reason. And, and interestingly, even though I've got quite a large frame, um, 6'3", 92 kilo, I don't lose a lot of sweat. Mm -hmm. Um, so the volume of sweat I lose isn't great, but it, it, I do have a higher sodium concentration in my sweat. Yeah, oh, that's really interesting yeah. stuff. 
Mate, we've all um, seen or heard about athletes being hooked up to a saline drip after an Ironman race or a marathon. And obviously the point of the drip is rapid rehydration. So what can we learn from this formula of the humble saline drip in terms of its uh, sodium content? Yeah, well, <laughs> I ended up on a saline drip and uh, I went from being incoherent to feeling like I could jump out of my skin within 10 minutes. And, uh, and I know a lot of athletes in the past that have ended up on a saline drip and, yeah, they're just blown away at how quickly they recover. Uh, and that's a, that's a one-litre bag of water with 3,000 milligrams of sodium. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a small amount of potassium. And interestingly, and this was really exciting for me because all this marketing and all the hype about magnesium and, and it being a rehydration formula um, was that there's, no, there's, not, there's, there's zero milligrams of magnesium in a saline drip. So all this study and all this research I'm doing on electrolyte composition of sweat and seeing very, very small amounts of magnesium in sweat and wondering why is it being marketed? Why, why are athletes being targeted with this particular mineral when we lose such little amount and then learning the composition of the saline drip? It was, uh, it was a good day, it was a real good day for me. So um, it just, just highlighted that the work I was doing was actually making sense yeah. And as you're saying, you know, most commercial drinks aren't going anywhere near the kind of sodium content that you require in order to get these results. Um, let, let, let's say I'm losing 1,200 milligrams of sodium per hour during an ultra marathon. How much can I typically replace per hour? Yeah, well, that's, that's another another um, journey in regards to my applied research and that was learning the stomach and what it could actually process. And the fact is we simply can't replace the amount we lose. Um, I, I could understand the volume of fluid while we can't um, replace the volume of fluid that we lose simply because of the surface, a- surface area of our skin compared to the size of our stomach. It's simply a volume thing. We're always gonna lose more sweat than our stomach can process. The, the, the strange thing for me was, um, for whatever reason, um, the concentration of sodium, we can't replace um, like for like. So if an athlete was losing, so you, you, made, you had the example of 1,200 milligrams of sodium. Yeah, asking for now, a friend. Asking for a friend. <laughs> so if you're losing a litre an hour, in that ultra marathon, you're, you would aim for about 50 to 60% of your loss. So five to 600 mils of fluid, there will always be a gap in regards to the f- amount of fluid that you can consume. Um, in regards to sodium, we started to learn that that was a similar amount for sodium as well. Mm-hmm. Um, in that um, if you were losing 1200 milligrams an hour, we, we weren't able to replace it. It was just the palatability of the product was just just overpowering. So when we brought that back, um, and this was obviously over years, it's not something you can learn in a few days, is that what the most palatable and most effective amount was, was around that 60% mark. Mm. So if with your concentration of sodium or your friend's concentration of sodium at 1200 milligrams, um, they would aim for sort of around that 600 to 700 
range. Yeah. Yeah. That's... But yeah, and so when you look at a traditional sports drink, it might have 300 milligrams in it. Mm-hmm. So um, while you might be okay for a few hours, once you get into that, the, the, the longer, longer the duration, the greater that loss will become and the greater that loss will impact on, on how well you can perform. Yeah. And, and look, I guess in terms of that negative impact of not enough sodium in the in your hydration formula, um, we, we talk about cramps regularly. That's, that's, that's a common scenario. I guess what are some other uh, dangers of not getting enough sodium per hour into the system? Yeah, well, just brain function, really. I think in, in this regard, you go back to the absolute worst case scenario. And if we don't have enough sodium concentration in our blood, uh, we can die. That's how important sodium is. Um, now, from an athlete perspective, if you can lose enough sodium that it can kill you, how much you need to lose for it to impact on your performance? Um, the fact is, some athletes can lose a lot more than others before it starts to impact their performance, and others may only need to lose a small amount before it starts to impact their performance. Once again, not everyone reacts the same to the same deficiencies. So you and I might be running along, we have the exact same sweat loss, we have a similar sodium concentration as sweat, we're drinking the same amount, but for whatever reason, you can tolerate that deficiency better than I can, and at some point I'll slow down before you do. So there's no... There's no rhyme or reason to it, mate. It's just there's so many different variables. Yeah. It's um, there's some pretty complex brain science involved there, you know, as as to our tolerance levels as well. So no, we won't, won't bore the listeners there too much. <laughs> no, well, and mate, there's no real answer to it either. It's, you know, I've thought about it so many times, and you get to the point where you just it's just the cards you dealt. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I go back to the early days with these firefighters; they had a distinct advantage over everyone else purely because of their DNA. They're, they were just born that way. Mm. Um, so that's where it's frustrating for some athletes, particularly world-class athletes who might have world championships in the one place every year and it's a hot, humid environment. doesn't matter how good they are. Mm. They will never win that race. Yeah. The, yeah. Their losses are so great that... Um, their physiological makeup would not allow them to uh, to win that race, mm. no matter how hard they train, how the heat acclimation. They can get better at training, at competing in the heat, but there's always going to be someone with a physiological makeup that just allows them to be able to perform in that heat just that bit better. Mm. And, and it's interesting for athletes to know those numbers, I suppose, in terms of the things that they target. You have to be realistic at some point um, and, and choose our weapon, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, play to your strengths. Mm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Interesting. Well, you talked about palatability of sodium previously. Do, do you find with your research that people who require more sodium in their, in their fluid intake uh, – they handle a saltier drink like does that taste better for them do they know what they need in that sense yeah mate you're spot on it's uh it's something a phenomenon a phenomenon that i've realized over the years that if i don't get an opportunity to um to uh test an athlete for their sodium concentration we do the palatability test um and it's been pretty damn accurate 
um, up until now. Um, so what I ask the athlete to do is um, like a 750 mil size bottle. What I want you to do is put two, two, between two and three tablets in that bottle. I want you to go for a ride or a run and I want you to try that particular mix and come back to me and uh, you know, give me some feedback on what you thought it tasted like, the palatability, um, how it sat on the stomach, all that sort of thing. And if the athlete had a high sodium concentration in their sweat, they would generally find that high mix palatable. Mm. Um, and, but if a uh, corresponding athlete with a lower sodium concentration in their sweat, their feedback would be, oh no, oh, that's, it's too overpowering. It's not palatable, it's just too strong. So um, that's been a really, really interesting um, uh, study that um, matches someone's concentration of sodium with the palatability of, of the drink, which was quite that. interesting. I love yeah. how intuitive we are. That's, that's pretty impressive. That's pretty impressive. Um, I guess quickly on the magnesium and obviously the Coda product doesn't have a great deal, but what is the danger of uh, too much magnesium on race day? Yeah. Well, and as I say in the audiobook, I don't want to underplay any electrolytes. So they, they're all very important, yep. but there's times where they're more important than others. So at rest, magnesium, you know, go nuts and, you know, find foods that are, that are you know, have a high um, magnesium content. The thing we found with athletes that were consuming too much magnesium and following all the, the marketing was unpleasant um, symptoms. And a lot of the time it was uncontrollable diarrhea. Yeah. And it's pretty simple uh, when you look at, um, go to a pharmacy and look at, look at laxatives, the main ingredient most often is magnesium. Mm -hmm. So, while it's an important mineral to focus on during your general eating, the fact is you, you lose very, very little in sweat. Um, so it's not something you really need to um, focus on too much during um, sweat loss. Um, and if you do, and if you do experience, you know, very um, extreme stomach pain or diarrhea, pretty good chance there's too much magnesium that you've loaded up prior to or you've consumed a lot during. Yeah, that's good. I think that's uh, something to be avoided, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's um, yeah. It, there's been a lot of athletes that, uh, particularly the longer events, um, Ironman events and uh, and ultra trail events, where yeah, the, the you have to be very very mindful of of what you're consuming over mm -hmm. a long duration. Yeah. Oh, look, I think that's, yeah, that's, that's great advice. Use sparingly. Um, so how can listeners find out what their unique sweat concentration looks like? I believe Coda uh, sell a sweat testing kit. Yeah, we, we do ours um, a little differently to, to others. Others you can sit in a lab and they put a coil on you. You can be at, at rest and uh, have a coil. Put in. It's, it's what they use to test cystic fibrosis. And people with cystic fibrosis generally have a very high sodium concentration in their sweat, very, very high. Um, we don't do it that way. We like the athlete to actually have their heart rate elevated and have a natural process of, of um, losing sweat, not, not a, an artificial process. Mm -hmm. 
So it's generally an hour on a treadmill or an hour run outside um, and, and or stationary bike for an hour where we put sweat, where we have a, a sweat patch that goes on the inner forearms and that collects a sweat. The athlete then, um, we provide uh, 10 mil syringes. They put the sweat patch into syringe, empty the contents into a, a specimen jar. Then they send that back to our warehouse where we analyze the, the sweat. And then we do a 30 minute consultation. Um, we explain to them the sodium concentration in their sweat. Um, during that one hour test, we also get the athlete to measure the volume of sweat they lose. Um, we also measure the calorie expenditure. So we like them to do the test as close to competition intensity as possible. That way you get a really good understanding of your calorie expenditure or the, um, the, uh, the number of calories that you're losing at that intensity. Mm -hmm. But also um, we combine your sweat rate and your sodium concentration. Mm -hmm. So just having your sodium concentration number, it's a great number to have, but it doesn't mean anything unless you know the volume of sweat that you lose. And while, you know, a, a wind trainer or an indoor um, treadmill test might show a much higher sweat rate as it would outside, what we do, we just teach the athlete to combine their sweat rate with their sodium concentration to get the number that they're, the amount of sodium they've lost in that hour. Mm -hmm. So for example, if, if you've lost a thousand milligrams of sodium per liter of sweat, that's your sodium concentration, 1,000 milligrams of sodium for every one liter of sweat. But if you go outside and do a run in cool conditions around you know, between five and eight degrees, your sweat rate might only be three or 400 mils per hour, might be very low sweat rate. So it'd be 0.3 times 1,000 milligrams. So you're losing 300 milligrams per hour of mm -hmm. sodium. Um, Conversely, if you go and do that run in the afternoon and it's 25 degrees and your sweat rate is now 1.8 litres an hour, it's 1.8 litres, still 1,000 milligrams of sodium. Your concentration of sodium hasn't changed, but now you're losing 1,800 milligrams of sodium an hour. So this is where you need to know your sweat rate as well. So if you, once you combine the two, you can have a much better understanding of how to... Um, plan a hydration strategy based on the environmental conditions you're going to be experiencing, yeah. not just set it. And then, well, that's it. I'm just going to drink the same amount, whether it's five degrees or, or whether it's 30 degrees. And, and I think many people have been pulled into that trap over, you know, certainly recent times into, let's say drinking 500 mils of fluid every hour for the duration of the race. It's uh, it's a pretty common, common trap. And, and it's a good segue into just talking about fluid and hydration in general terms. Um, so in, in terms of, in terms of fluid loss and, and hydration from, from the audio book, it seems the three biggest mistakes people make are drinking too much fluid in cold conditions, not enough in hot conditions and relying on their fluid intake for their calorie consumption. Would you say that's uh, an accurate description of the, the biggest downfalls, Darren? Absolutely, yeah. And that you see it time and time again, there's athletes with low sweat rates 
who are forced to drink a volume of fluid way beyond what they need to try and access the calories in their drink. So they've mixed everything together and they go, okay, well, you know, I've got to drink this volume of fluid. Otherwise I won't get the calories I need. And if I don't get the calories I need, then I don't get the fuel I need to, to get to the finish. Um, it happens time and time again, particularly in these longer events when it is cold in the morning. You know, some athletes won't even need to drink anything at all. Their sweat rates are so low in those cold conditions that they don't even have the need to drink. Um, some athletes might need, you know, a couple of hundred mils, um, some 350, 400 mils. It really depends on their sweat rate in those conditions. Um, but if, you're, if you've set um, a, a one-size-fits-all volume or an amount, a set amount, then you better hope that if you are accessing 500 mils of fluid an hour, that you're losing close to 900, to, 900 mils to an, a litre an hour for your stomach not to blow up in a few hours' time. Yeah, and, and at 6 a.m. in the Blue Mountains, it's pretty unlikely someone's losing a litre of sweat in an hour. Very unlikely. Mm. Um, and that's and you're right. So that's a perfect example of Blue Mountains uh, Ultra Trail. It can be two, three, four degrees at the start of that event. Mm. But then get down to the valley, it can be 25 degrees. So you're experiencing a huge range in temperature. Um, and if you can take this knowledge into an event like that and understand that the volume of fluid that you consume is going to change, then it makes things so much easier to plan. Mm. Uh, and, and look, we'll, we'll get into some calorie stuff a bit more specifically, but I guess in that um, scenario where someone's you know, got themselves 500 mils of fluid to drink in that first hour, uh, and they don't feel like drinking 500 mils of fluid. It just means that they're not accessing their, let's say, 200 calories for that hour. It makes it very difficult to get that calorie content, which they absolutely need in that first hour, whereas they don't need the 500 mils of fluid. So a uh, great example of why not to mix the two, I suppose. Perfect example of why you separate your hydration and calories because mm. your calorie expenditure, whether it's 5 degrees or whether it's 25 degrees, your calorie expenditure is going to be the same. You're running at the same intensity. So if you have set yourself a goal to consume 200 calories an hour, it's going to be that at five degrees and it's going to be that at four o'clock in the afternoon um, when you're you know, deep into the event. Um, it's then understanding that the volume of fluid you consume is going to be quite different in, at those times. Mm -hmm. And look, we talked about, I guess, range of um, sodium concentration. What sort of range of uh, fluid loss have you seen over the years? Yeah. Oh, um, so there's, there was one particular study we did. It was 30 athletes, triathletes, all quite similar um, fitness levels. And we had them, right, I think it was 2.8 watts per kilo, which is a, quite a solid um, hit out um, over one hour period. Um, we did uh, two weeks apart where we did a, a, a 28 degrees, 65% humidity, where and I'm, I'm going way back to the memory bank here, but I, the sweat rate, the lowest was about 0.9, so 900 mils, and the highest was about 2.8 liters. Wow. So um, massive, massive disparity between the volume of sweat. And uh, the ladies probably won't like this much, but 
a lot of people are under the impression that females don't sweat as much as, as guys. Um, <laughs> there's been a lot of cases in the study that I've done over the years where the girls have had quite um, quite a lot higher sweat rates than, than the guys. Mm-hmm. So it's not, it's not gender specific. It's, um, it's just your physiological makeup. Yeah. Yeah. Interestingly, um, what we did two weeks later with those same 30 athletes is we did the same intensity, but this time at 12 degrees with a, I think it's about 55% humidity and the sweat rates were, I think it ran so 300 mils to about 1.5 liters. So you could see the dramatic drop in how much fluid the athlete was losing. Um, but how it changed, you know, only with a 13 degree swing. Um, there's quite a big, uh, big uh, range in, uh, in sweat loss. Yeah. And that's, I guess that's really, really practically important for a race like ultra trail or any ultra marathon, really that 13 degree swim, swing would be common through the day. Yeah, that's right. So, um, and that's the thing too, if, if you're losing half a liter an hour, you know, you'll probably aim for about 250 mil. You, you'll try and aim for that 50% uh, mark. Um, th- and this is the funny thing about learning about the digestive system is that we can comfortably tolerate 500 mils an hour or process 500 mils an hour if we're losing a liter an hour, mm. but we can't process 500 mils an hour when we're losing 500 mils an hour. Mm. Um, so that was another thing that, this is why it took me so long because I'm going, well, why, why, can't, why can't we just match our sweat loss? If we're losing 500 mils an hour, why can't we drink 500 mils an hour? Um, there's some mechanism, um, hydration status or fluid balance or whatever it is that takes control, the hypothalamus in the brain that says, well, you're losing this much um, and this is all we're going to allow across the stomach. Um, but then if you're losing two litres an hour, um, we've had athletes who have been able to tolerate 1.2 litres an hour over an extended period of time. Um, so at that point, um, the brain's recognised that, yeah, we're losing a lot more sweat. You know, let's, let's open the floodgates. We can, but there's a point where you can only consume so much yep. regardless so of how time. much you're losing. Yeah, yeah just... And, and yeah. so 1.2 seems to be that upper limit then, 1.2 litres per hour? On a bicycle, on a bike, okay. On a bike, yeah. A runner's a runner is not going to consume 1.2 liters an hour. It's just logistically difficult. Running, running is a super difficult sport for consuming hydration and calories. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I explain that in the in the audio book is that, and I and I drive home the point that if you're a runner, these numbers are only for someone on a bicycle. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, if you can't get to the 50 percent of your loss you know, 40% is going to be a really good um, number to target. Yeah. So, and, and then it really comes down to your digestive system. Yeah. You, you might be able to tolerate a great, greater volume than someone else, even though you're losing the same amount. Yeah. Um, some people's stomachs are just way more robust than others. Mm. Just, just another... Constant test another, and retest. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and re- understanding that you are physiologically unique and you need to... And you're out training all the time. So it's things you can think about, things you can learn about yourself while you're out, while you are out training, you know, using that time when you are running to, well, what is, how much sweat am I losing? You know, what can my stomach tolerate at five degrees? 
what can it tolerate at 25 degrees? Mm. Um, and the more mistakes you make in training, the less you're going to make on race day, which is what we all want to do. Spot on. I guess I guess on that range there, is, is there a rough metric for fluid loss once an athlete knows their sweat rate at, say, 20 degrees and 60% humidity, or is it a purely individual thing? Yeah, that's a great question, mate. It's it's There's no algorithm when it comes to sweat. Um, it'd be awesome if uh, you lost 1.2 litre at 20 degrees and 600 mils at 10 degrees. But um, yeah, it doesn't work that way, unfortunately. Um, we've had some athletes over time, even with a five degree swing, it can add dramatic amounts of sweat loss to their um, to the volume of sweat they lose, even, even with a small swing in temperature. Um, it can be 20 degrees and they're flying along, not losing a lot of sweat. Um, at 23 degrees, it's a whole different, it's a whole different day to them. Which switch, is the switch gets flicked, I guess. Yeah. So, you know, they, their core temperature gets to a point where they just, you know, they're just that the floodgates open and they just sweat profusely with only a, a small swing in temperature. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's just another reason why we need to be very careful about reading these published articles. And if they come to a conclusion, then you really got to be susceptible to it, uh, uh, skeptical, sorry, to it. Um, mm -hmm. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, I've got a couple of listener questions. I'll, I'll run through number one. This has come from uh, Frothers United Run Club. And he says, uh, every time I finish a run, I need to wring about a litre of fluid out of my socks. Can I train my body to sweat out of a more useful area of my body? <laughs> well, yeah. It's, another thing I've recognised over the years is we will sweat from different parts of the body. Um, there'll be head sweaters. There'll be torso sweaters. There'll be leg sweaters, which it sounds like this person is. Um, it's probably, mate, it's probably, if, it's the, if their socks are getting super, super wet, it's, it's more likely they're leg sweaters and that sweat's just running down into their socks. The feet aren't a huge surface area. So um, if they are getting drenched like that, um, probably, probably buttocks and leg sweater, this particular person. And it just means that you have a, a much higher concentration of sweat glands in that area. Um, it's, it, it's, it's something that I used to have to deal with a lot. You know, I'm a, an athlete to come to me and say, I'm a massive sweater. And I'm like, okay, well, let's, let's do the pre and post weighing and we'll do it. And I go, well, actually, you don't sweat that much. You're quite a, you're quite a light sweater. So, oh, no, no, it gets in my eyes and it's uncomfortable. I said, yeah, but you're sweating mainly from the head. You know, there's not a lot of sweat in the torso or legs. Um, you know, it might feel uncomfortable, might feel like you sweat a lot, but it's a very small surface area and the actual volume of sweat you're losing is not that high. So all this time that you've been drinking lots of fluid, thinking that you are a heavy sweater, in fact, the volume you've been losing hasn't been that much. So back off on the amount of fluid you've been drinking and... And then, oh, oh, yeah, had a had an awesome run. Didn't get the stomach issues, and you know, I felt great afterwards. Um, so it's not always. Uh, it, it's not always. Um, yeah, yeah. There, there'd be a ton of those out there, I reckon. Sort of forehead sweaters that aren't sweating a great deal elsewhere. That's that's a really interesting yeah. point. Yeah. Um, so I guess from a practical point of view. I guess we've talked to talked about Tim Noakes' uh, drink to thirst kind of policy 
on on the podcast in the past. We've obviously debunked the fact that people should be having 500 mils an hour every hour. How do people practically gauge how much they should be drinking throughout the course of a day? Yeah, well, the, the best way is do that pre and post weighing. Mm-hmm. And if, if they are if they are training for a particular event, the best thing to do is to look at what the historical data is in regards to weather. Um, and if they know that they're going to be starting at 6 a.m. in the morning and the temperature range is between 4 and 10 degrees, start to learn what your sweat rate is at, at, at those temperatures. I know it's difficult sometimes if you're in the in different parts of the, of the seasons, but that's by far the best way. Um, it's, it's then understanding that, okay, so lunchtime, I'm getting down into the valley. It's you know, generally between 19 and 27 degrees. Um, how much sweat do I lose then? So it's going to be a point where you're going to be losing a lot more sweat than other times. And you're going to be drinking a greater volume than other times. Um, So in the morning, start off with when it is going to be cooler. It's always going to be cooler in the mornings. A smaller amount and then slightly increase the volume throughout the day. Um, And then into the night, obviously, back that off again. Um, But, yeah, to your your question, it's it's that pre and post weighing. That's the the best way. So so we need to be sort of... Pre and post weighing at a few different temperatures throughout that range, just to get our get our specific numbers. Yeah, to get an, an understanding of of how to best plan your hydration strategy. That's okay. uh, rather than that set volume. Mm. And and in terms of the the Tim Noakes drink to thirst stuff, do you, do you find I guess that those numbers correlate again with palatability, or you know, do, do we intuitively know how much we should be drinking? No, we don't. That drink to thirst is it's just, it simplifies things, mm. <laughs> but it's been strip- demonstrated many, many, many times before that we just don't drink to thirst. Um, if you're losing two litres an hour and you know you're losing, you're, you're losing two litres an hour, you try and aim for that 1.2 litres an hour if your stomach can tolerate that, if you're on a bicycle. Mm-hmm. If you're running, you're probably going to aim for maybe 700 to 900 mils. Um, that's, that's sort of the upper limit of, of what you can consume when you're running, given the stomach's like a washing machine when you run. Um, but this drink to thirst, um, yeah, there's, <laughs> there's a lot of athletes out there that, that, that mechanism really doesn't kick in. Um, and when, when you talk about the volume of fluid that some athletes are drinking, early on in a race when it's cold, um, well, you know, it's, it's the drink of thirst. It's really just, I, I don't know, some people just try to, and I see why they try to simplify things, um, but the fact is we generally don't drink to thirst. That's, that's just uh, no, nature. I completely agree. And there's no way that I've been thirsty at 6.30 in the morning at the start of a hundred kilometer ultra marathon, I'm just drinking because I, I think I should rather than yeah. because I'm actually thirsty. That's that never kicked in at 6 30 in the morning. That's for sure. No. And that's, um, and, and you, you bring up a good point. There's a lot of athletes that will drink copious amounts of water before these endurance events, thinking that they can store 
and you can't store, all that's going to do, drinking that plain water is going to dilute the sodium concentration of your blood and you're going to start that event with deficiencies. And starting with deficiencies is the last thing you want to do. Mm. So, um, yeah, that's a, a good tip for it. And, and it happens all the time, you know. Uh, and, and athletes that cramp early in an event, um, generally the feedback is, yeah, I drank, you know, this amount of water the night before and I drank a huge bolus in the morning as well. Um, and it, it generally, once you explain to them that, okay, this is what you've probably done, that you've started with some deficiencies, um, it's, it sort of makes sense to them. And, and potentially a couple of kilos overweight and with all that fluid on board as well. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. No, we don't need any more of that, that's for sure. Um, all right, we'll talk, we'll, we've talked sodium, we've talked uh, fluid. We, we'll, we'll jump onto the next topic, which is calories. So obviously there's a, there's a huge range of calorie expenditure with different athletes at different levels of intensity of exercise. Uh, and, and I guess the same rules apply to our discussion on sodium and fluid. That The goal seems to be to replace as, as many of the losses as possible. Um, what kind of ranges of calorie expenditure do we see um, in a runner specifically? Yeah. Um, well, if you want to use a 100K run as an example, uh, you can have some runners expending 300 calories an hour and others up around sort of seven to 800 calories an hour. Mm. So straight away, there's a huge disparity between the amount of fuel that uh, each athlete requires. So um, this is where, you know, most, most runners have got uh, a device that can measure their heart rate and that device will give them their calorie expenditure as well. Mm. So if you are doing a particular run based on the intensity that you want to run on, on competition day, you can get a pretty good understanding of the units of energy that you're expending at that intensity. And it's a really good number to have because it then sort of, you can combine that number over the amount of hours you're going to compete for. And, you know, it could be, you know, six, 7,000 calories. And the, the, the thing I, a lot of athletes come to me and say, well, you know, why do I need calories? You know, can't I just, can I just access the stores that I have? And I said, well, you know, you can for a short period of time, but it really depends on the intensity you're going to run at. And the higher the intensity, obviously, the quicker the fuel stores are going to run out. Um, and I always just said, look, think about just a normal work day where you might be sitting at a computer. Do you eat food during the day? Well, of course you do. And well, what happens if you don't eat food? Well, I feel tired and lethargic and I don't want to do anything. I said, well, you've got to, you've got to consume calories. It's just, it's just part of what you need to do to, uh, to compete an event for that period of time, uh, whether it's 10 hours, whether it's 14, 16, 18, whatever it is, um, having an understanding of what your calorie expenditure is first will give you a real good idea of what you need to aim for each hour to try and minimise the percentage of loss. Yep, yep. And once again, asking for a friend, uh, let's say my rough calorie expenditure at five-minute Ks is 800 calories per hour. So how many calories should I be looking to replace at that level of intensity? Right, so you're, you're running, you're not riding a bike. Running, yep. Your, your friend's running. 
Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and medium pace, yeah. Okay. So 800 calories an hour um, for a runner, you would probably aim for around that 250 to 290 calories an hour. Mm-hmm. That would be the advice. Um, and you would have some training sessions up to probably, is this for a 100K run you're talking about for your uh, friend? Yep, yep. Yeah. So you do some decent five or six hour runs where you really test out um, your stomach's limit. Um, and if you did find that 290 calories was a bit too much, mm. you would you would find that out in that five or six hour training session. Mm. And then you would go, look, okay, even though I am losing 800 calories an hour, um, the upper limit of what my stomach can tolerate is around 250 calories. I've worked that out in my training. Um, so you need to then go, okay, my stomach can tolerate 250 calories an hour. I'm expending 800 calories an hour. So there's a, there's a big gap there. Um, as, is the training that I've done and my, the, the glycogen storage and my fat, the ability to burn fat, is that robust enough to make up that gap between what I'm expending and what my stomach can tolerate? Or do I have to be a bit more realistic and aim at 520 pace where that brings the calorie expenditure down, but it's, but I'm going to, I'm going to not get to 80 K mark and blow to pieces. I'm going to be strong for the next 20 and I'm going to, you know, uh, get to the line in the time that I've, that I've um, set. So there's, there's lots to think about, which I know a lot of people that do the hundred K do not think about that sort of thing. And it, it's what you need to think about. You need to be super, super, um, uh, have a really good understanding of, of what you're losing and what your stomach can tolerate mm. if, you, if you really want to conquer that run. Yeah. And, and look, I mean, I, I'm talking sort of 100K stuff a bit, but if we scale it back to the, the marathon, you know, let's say a three-hour effort, that kind of thing, uh, yep. are people less likely to be able to tolerate that say 290 calories is it is it more difficult to to do at that sort of higher intensity of running yeah it is it's um at the higher intensity yeah your stomach's even more sensitive Mm -hmm. um or the limitations are greater Um, what we found with marathon is majority of people it's that 28 to 32k mark that's where things start to fall apart for a lot of them and for most it's the simple fact they've run out of glycogen and that glycogen is our, our high-intensity fuel. It's the fuel that we're accessing for ATP production. It's at that point we're not losing, we're not using, utilizing a lot of fat simply because it requires a lot more oxygen, and um, the glycogen doesn't require as much oxygen to burn. So, um, what we're finding now with marathon runners is they're taking gels on earlier. And when you do take on calories or gels earlier, your, your muscles are accessing the stored, the, sorry, the circulating blood glucose and it's sparing that glycogen for later on in the run. So we've kind of got them sort of that 8K, 16K, 24K mark. And what they're finding is that last 10K from 32K onwards, they're able to maintain that pace 
And because they've still got that glycogen available because they haven't used it all up in that first 32 Ks. So we're finding that um, before, um, you know, the, the use of gels and that sort of thing was kind of um, not, not looked upon as being something that, that a lot of marathon, marathon runners used, particularly that many, three up until that point. Um, but having said that, um, and as I explained in the audiobook, there's going to be some athletes who just have a greater storage capacity of glycogen than others. And they can maintain a higher intensity for a longer period of time. And once again, that's, that's an advantage they have that has nothing to do with how hard they train. It's just that their unique physiological makeup. Yeah, that's good. And look, how specific are you getting in terms of this calorie intake? You mentioned in the book that certain athletes are taking on a gel every 23 minutes. They've got it down to such a fine yeah. art that they know it's 23 minutes rather than 25. Yeah, that's um, it, it, yeah. There's some athletes that take it super seriously, um, and that, and when I do refer to that timing, that's uh, for a triathlete during the bike leg. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, taking a gel every 23 minutes on the run, uh, you would more than likely upset the stomach at some point. Um, so yeah, very specific with the amount of calories. They want to find the absolute maximum amount of calories their stomach can tolerate to bridge the gap to their losses. And the better they can do that, what they found is that running off the back of their um, bike leg, they're able to run at a higher intensity for a longer period of time, simply because they've minimized their percentage of loss on that bike. And that's the key. Um, And that's the whole thing about any type of event that you do is that if you can minimize loss up into a point where you're normally um, running out of legs, then you should be able to finish that event off in a better condition than you did uh, previously. Yeah, for sure. Uh, that's, that's good. Um, trying to, I guess, um, bridge bridge a couple of those topics. So why is it so important to have adequate sodium levels in terms of accessing our carbohydrates and our calories? Yeah, so sodium is a co-transporter of glucose. So think about if you have, um, if you've lost a lot of sweat and in that sweat you've lost a lot of sodium, then the transportation of glucose to the muscles and around circulating around the body is going to be slowed. So um, that's one reason. The other reason is that sodium is critical to the messages that are being sent from the brain down the central nervous system to the muscles. So if your sodium concentration is low, those messages aren't being sent as, as quickly as, as they should be. Um, and that can be probably not so much for road running when you're not having to think too much about things, but for trail running, when you've got rocks, roots, you know, um, off camber trails, all those sorts of things that if you're not thinking straight, you can easily roll an ankle or do a knee. If you're not putting your foot in the right spot, you're having to concentrate so much more. Mm -hmm. So there's that energy expenditure that we can't measure, but, there's a lot more energy expenditure trial running than there is uh, road running for that simple fact that the brain's utilising a lot more fuel. Yeah, look, I've heard the human brain described as a sugar-hungry beast. So can you describe the importance of adequate calorie consumption then in terms of 
avoiding the dark spots or mental lows we see in distance running? Yeah, so the, the difference is that our, our brain can't store glucose like our muscle cells can. So it needs that constant supply in the bloodstream. And, you know, there's some people out there, out there saying that, you know, you can utilise fat. But the fact is, if you are utilising fat for, um, for the brain, it means you've run out of glucose and it's a survival mechanism. So the, it's super important that we have, you know, a good amount of circulating blood glucose for the brain to access. And it's, you see it time and time again, particularly with sports, where they have to process a lot of information. Um, you will run out of energy a lot sooner when you're, when you're uh, performing in a sport where you're having to use muscles physically, but then having to process information with the brain as well. Um, it's, it's something that um, a lot of athletes don't really put too much thought into. Uh, if your brain's not functioning properly, nothing else is. Mm. So I guess that's the best way to look at it. You, you, need to that, you need that thing to be functioning. So all the processes that are happening, the extra blood that's being sent to the, to the muscles, like all these other different processes that happen when we're active at elevated heart rate, um, it's all being, it's all being uh, controlled by the brain. Mm. And I've always used, well, more recently used it as an impetus to eat more sugar. If I'm having a, you know, a dark patch or, a, you know, a tough spot mentally, then I sort of just go, well, perhaps you don't have enough carbohydrate in the system time to have another gel. So, uh, and it's, it, it's almost like an instant fix for that little bit of brain fog. So. Yeah. And in, interestingly, you mentioned sugar that the gels that we manufacture, it, it's, it's a ground down corn. There's mm. actually no, when we think of sugar, it's that crystalline form. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's none of that in the gels at all. Mm. Um, a lot of people are on the impression that it's just all sugar. Mm. I, I um, yeah, I, I, the, I think the difference, just having an understanding that the gel is an actual food um, and there's a lot of science behind the actual manufacture or the, or the um, formulating of those gels. Mm-hmm. that a lot of people don't understand. And once you have an understanding of the science behind them, um, athletes start to get their head around why they use them and they become um, more understanding of, of the reasons to and more willing to, to use them, mm. yeah, which is I, interesting. Absolutely. And, and uh, you, you lose things like flavour fatigue because you, you understand that it's just exactly what your body needs to do rather than worrying about uh, taking that next gel. You actually want to have the next gel. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Mm. What, what about, uh, we talk about sodium in terms of cramping. What about the role of inadequate calorie intake in terms of cramp? Yeah, that there has been times where an athlete, and we know, we've know we, we've known we've addressed their hydration well. We know that we've, we've uh, got as close to their sodium loss as we possibly could with their stomach limitations. It's been simply the fact that they've depleted their glycogen stores that much that they've cramped. And we've introduced gels and we've increased their calorie intake. Um, they've had success in getting rid of those um, muscle cramping issues, but the overwhelming majority of muscle cramping and that I've seen over the years is that if you do experience muscle cramping, 
or you're more likely to experience muscle cramping, cramping if you have a higher sweat rate and or a higher sodium concentration in your sweat. Mm-hmm. Um, that's over the, the amount of data I've collected over the years. There's, there's no doubt about that. So an important number to get right. More and more important the longer the podcast goes on. Yeah, um, absolutely. I've got a listener question coming from the Wolfman. So he wants to know, what role, if any, do you see for consuming more solid food during competition? Uh, and he wants to ask about the thermic effect of consuming real food. Yeah, it's, um, that's a good question. There's really no right or wrong when it comes to calories. There's athletes who can consume ge- just gels only for 24 hours, um, you know, two or three gels an hour for 24 hours. The thought of that for me, I, there's no way I could do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but if they have solid foods, uh, within half an hour, they're vomiting. So th- the answer to the question is it's very personal. Um, if the only thing with, a, with solid foods is, is spot on with the thermic effect. The fact is, if it is a solid food, you're going to utilize a lot more energy or require a lot more energy to convert that food into fuel. The whole idea of energy gels is that it's pre-digested in its manufacture, which sounds a bit gross, but it's actually gone through the processes that food goes through in the stomach um, with the hydrochloric acid in the stomach uh, and the muscles churning to make that food, that food chyme-like, which is chyme is what all food is converted to in the stomach. Mm-hmm. So when you are eating solid foods and I'm not saying don't eat solid foods because there's going to be times in those long endurance events where you just feel you need to have some solid food options, but be mindful that the amount of energy you require to convert that to fuel is going to be a lot more than it is for gels. So um, my point really is that once you have a, a better understanding of gels and their thermic effect, the energy to volume ratio, all these important characteristics, um, you, you'll start to understand that gels will probably fill the majority of the calories that you consume and the solid food options will come in as, you know, just to break it up, just to get that solid food option here now, uh, now and again. Yeah, that's been my take on it. I sort of wouldn't carry any solid food with me, but might grab a couple of bits and pieces at an aid station just for something different to put in my mouth. But the yeah, vast exactly. majority of the energy is coming in in gel form there. Yeah. yeah. Um, is, is there any uh, value in replacing fat or protein at all during race day? We've got unlimited fat stores. Um, so at a lower intensity, if we're just jogging along at six or seven minute Ks, we're accessing a lot of fat stores and only small amounts of glycogen and, and, and uh, circulating blood glucose. Um, consuming fat, really no need because we have so much stored. Um, when we start to increase the intensity of our run and we start to run faster, that transition from fat to glycogen and glucose becomes um, heavier on the glycogen and glucose side and less on the fat simply because we require a lot of oxygen to burn fat. Mm. Um, that's, that's why it transitions. Um, in regards to protein, protein has a very high thermic effect. Um, 
which means it requires a lot of energy to convert to fuel. Um, great to have after your run, but a lot of protein during it, it you know, you're just going to, you're just utilizing a lot of that energy that's in the protein to, to metabolize it. So it's like filling up your tank, sorry, paying, paying for a fuel tank, a full tank of fuel at this petrol station, but only getting three quarters of a tank full. So yeah, carbohydrate is king when it comes to, or queen, when it comes to uh, the uh, fuel source when we're running. I like that. I like that. And I'd be surprised if you got three quarters of the tank uh, if you were eating protein, to be perfectly honest. I don't think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's good. And, and brief, briefly, uh, I know there's a lot to it, but uh, what about the role of caffeine in terms of the gels? A couple of uh, the coated gels have about 80 milligrams of caffeine stored in there. Um, is there a better time to, to take caffeine on board? Yeah, there is. And it's towards the the latter end of the of the run when you start to get that mental fatigue and the thing is and i've done a lot of work with caffeine over the years and the fact is some athletes won't have any response to caffeine at all no matter how much you provide them some will have a mild response and some will just get an absolute kick from it um, once again there's no rhyme or reason to this it's just how you're wired in fact i've had a couple of athletes that that take caffeine and within half an hour they're fast asleep it has the exact opposite reaction so um, firstly it's just <clears throat> trialing it in training first to see how it works for you but the fact is if you look at the calorie content of our non-caffeinated gel and the calorie content of our caffeinated gel they're exactly the same. There's no, there's no energy, there's no calories in caffeine. So it doesn't actually give you energy. All it does, the, the, probably the benefit is that it alters the perception of how you feel. So when you get those voices in your head that, no, no more steps, oh, look how, look how bloody high this climb is, or I feel like crap, um, why did I even start this in the first place? When those voices start to kick in, that's the best time for caffeine, just to assist with that mental fatigue. The, the, the reason that it's best to take it then and not earlier is that if you're taking caffeine early in the run, you, you want to be running at the intensity that you've trained at. So if you've set yourself 520 pace, um, then you run at 520 pace. A lot of the times, and it happens all at the well, it happens quite a lot. The athletes start taking caffeine early, 520, oh, 520 pace, oh, I feel so good. You know, they start 510s, 505s. And they're running based on a perceived perception of how they feel rather than how they should be feeling at that time. We're all going to be feel fantastic at the start. It's that back end of the run is when things get really hard is when you start to, you require that bit of assistance. Um, and that's where the caffeine can help some. Yep. Certainly performs miracles on me in the back end. So, oh, if you, you've got a good response to it. Yeah, yeah, it seems to seems to work well. It seems to yeah. be a bit of a buzz. So, but yeah, like I say, a bit of trial and error. It's not the kind of thing you want to try for the first time on race day. That's for sure. Um, 
All right, mate. It's it's been uh, amazingly enlightening. As I said, you've 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 brought some some really complex scientific sort of stuff and and yeah, made it really simple for the listeners to to understand. So thank you. That's some great information there. And uh, I'll just reiterate that um, if the listeners want to jump on at codanutrition.com and use the the promo code RUNMAT15, so RUNMAT1T15, they can get a discount on all the great Coda gear. And Coda are also stocked at Renala, our our friends down at Renala, Sean and Jen. So uh, go down and, 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 and try some out there, particularly if you're going to be doing Ultra Trail Australia this year. I believe that the Coda stuff will be on hand at the aid stations, Daryl. Oh, not this year, mate, no. I think it's um, – we didn't have our tablets available because we had the fire in the factory that makes our tablets. Oh. And, uh, yeah, so during COVID, which was pretty challenging – Mm. Uh, but they're back in stock now, which is good. But okay. yeah, we we just um, we just got to get back at our feet before okay. we uh, yeah. So oh, sadly, saying, won't be there. But no, no, no reason why you can't use the the tabs and the gels. Very very portable. Yep, fantastic. As I said, get codenutrition.com or get them down at Ranella. Um, but yeah, thanks so much, Daryl. And uh, where where can the listeners jump on and grab the the audio book, mate? Oh, so uh, Sweat, Think, Go Faster, you can, uh, on Apple, iTunes, uh, Audible, uh, Google Play, and audiobooks.com. Okay, so yeah. just about anywhere. Yeah, yeah, okay. it's, uh, yeah, it's, um, it's worth listening to. It, it's just, hopefully it simplifies things for, for the athlete. And I know for a fact that I, I get, messages all the time about these light bulb moments athletes have when they're thinking about events that they've done and mistakes they might have made and and a lot of the audiobook explains to them you know what what the reason for that uh for that blow up was or that stomach issue or you know early onset fatigue or whatever it might be it's uh mm-hmm. yeah it, it, it's a lot of advice there it's plenty of light bulbs to be found in there, no doubt about it. <laughs> thanks, mate. Uh, yeah, thank, thanks so much for your time, Daryl, and uh, we'll uh, hopefully chat, chat soon. Yeah, it was great talking to you. Thanks for having me. Thanks, mate. Cheers.